Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Round, September 23rd, 2015. We have uh, a busy set of speakers this morning with Dr. Sam Casella, our Chief Patient Safety Officer and Associate Professor of uh, Endocrinology, and Johanna Belava, our Director of Patient Care Services for Maternal and Child Health as well as Psychiatry, uh, our MBA. So I'm going to get us started. Um, and do a little bit of quick uh, AV work behind the scenes, or in front of you, actually. And we'll get on the road. And okay, so I'll start off with our State of Chat update 2015. We're in high def, apparently, or widescreen rather than uh, four by three uh, ratio. Um, but when we last met as a community for community-wide Chad Grand Rounds, November 12, 2014, uh, the audience is a great audience today. We were over full in capacity. We are going to review this talk again in the winter with our colleagues who are in the community group practices when they are ready to launch their safety culture training. So uh, we have folks who are watching in Bennington and other places, but we're going to we'll have two rounds of this. Uh, but when we last met, we had wrapped up an impressive summer and fall of an imagining process, uh, an appreciative inquiry process where we were imagining our future and, and, um, and planning for it and actually launching into our work. And we together created a dream, a dream statement that I hope many of you have in your workspaces and read from time to time. And I am actually going to take the time to read it again today because there's power in reminding ourselves what we committed to and what we believe. So imagine it is 2019. Chad is a crown jewel of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, a sustainable integrated academic pediatric health system celebrated for its contributions to the health of infants, children, and adolescents in our region and beyond. Chad is structured as a network of patient and family-centered pediatric primary care medical homes supported by two major specialty hubs, DHMC, New Hampshire's only tertiary care academic medical center, and a new consolidated full-service ambulatory center in Manchester. These centers are unified through common decor that fosters an environment which is welcoming, cheerful, calming, and safe. In those locations, as well as others to which it is invited, Chad seamlessly delivers coordinated value-based care through the use of cutting-edge interactive technologies and consistent implementation of standardized best practices. We attract the most dedicated and talented people and nurture them to be skilled, compassionate, and collaborative. We collaborate in local interdisciplinary professional teams as well as across geographic and institutional boundaries to ensure the best care at the right place every time. We gather regularly to connect names with faces, like today, to collectively develop our common standards and to strengthen our mutually held culture of caring. Inextricably linked with the thriving Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and strongly connected with other educational institutions, we advance care through rigorous scholarship, inquiry, and the questioning of old paradigms and generation of new ideas inherent in teaching 
Everybody teaches to patients, families, students, trainees, residents, fellows, and each other. Our small scale allows innovation to be implemented rapidly, and our partnerships allow its impact to be felt widely. Learners across a range of disciplines recognize these advantages and aspire to join us. True to our heritage, we reach beyond the walls of our institution to promote injury prevention and wellness in our communities for all children across the lifespan. Since every kid is a Chad kid, we advocate for policies and investments in infrastructure that enhance child health to government and non-governmental agencies who respect our unique and important role. Our Chadvocacy also includes proudly telling our story to attract new patients and regional partners to gain trust and secure resources from payers and philanthropists to perpetuate our mission. Patients and their families always remain at the heart of everything we do. We join with them in truly personal relationships to share their medical decision-making and support them in times of need, their times of need. They serve specific roles in our well-defined leadership structure, directly informing our goals, planning, and processes. They inspire us to continuously elevate our abilities to help improve their lives for generations to come. So keep dreaming, everyone. And we, we had a dream, then we had some plans that we dreamed together, and we created about five teams, action plan teams, to work on these dreams. I'm gonna update you today briefly on the status of our, of our planning, but we broke it down, in my estimation, I break it down into sharing what we learn about delivering the best care by the best people in the right places every time, with three teams came out of our, our summit process on care planning and communication, interdisciplinary coordination and program development, and Friendly and, and Empowering Patient Portal had three teams which we sort of brought together. The best people, we had a leadership forum suggested as well as a, a team looking at living our positive core. In the right places with a team devoted to developing our Manchester hub, our, our, our second uh, uh, specialty center, and our service line structure on execution. So things have happened in the year. We're part of a macro system or a meso system. We're part of actually micro, macro and meso systems. And uh, there's new leadership around, and there are new, not ever-changing goals. I don't think the, the, the grid I would have shown last year, sort of our strategic operating matrix, which you can find online, was definitely had the imperative that we create a sustainable health system to improve the lives of people and communities we serve for generations to come. We had four columns before. Now there are three. There's new folks in roles, new leadership roles, and it's an ever-evolving uh, picture. Uh, for those who are interested in the state of the medical school, there will be a state of the medical school address next Monday night up at Kellogg Auditorium at 5 p.m. and an Auditorium H in the New Williamson Building at 5 o'clock on Tuesday night. There's transition there as well. We are part of those. But I'm going to focus on Chad and, and the teams we're working with. So those three teams that we had pulled together, <clears throat> which I sort of call collaborative interdisciplinary family-empowered care under the best care. We've had some initiatives going on in the past year. Many of you in this room have, have worked on some teams. We're, uh, we're about to launch a, a HRSA, Health Resources Service Administration Telehealth Network application to advance our ability to serve the needs of uh, actually very specifically children with needs who are living in rural poverty and connecting with the telehealth network. Um, but the network wasn't quite as well developed as we thought it was to go to that advanced stage. So we have connections with telehealth now and our development office to keep that in mind. What I call the bridge program, which is essentially a complex care and palliative care service for children who have um, medical complexity and special health care needs, has started to organize itself. 
Um, we're still trying to identify the very best leadership, but we've co-located some of our teams, our nursing and our secretary from the TLC program and the spina bifida program in an office on Rubin, which helps create uh, a team sense and, and moves us forward in the collaborative thinking as those are fundamental building blocks of populations that we serve with those extra needs. And um, there's a Greenbelt project going on in DHPA, the psychiatric associations to uh, our, our psychiatric partners, psychology and psychiatry to, um, to look at how we take intake those uh, patients with behavioral health challenges uh, with a variety of locations that they end up sometimes in child neurology, sometimes in child psychology and, and, and child and adolescent psychiatry, sometimes in developmental pediatrics. Our leadership forum, <clears throat> well, we sort of had an in and that John Malinowski suggested this and he knew he was already launching an institution-wide leadership forum uh, that we will participate in. But within Chad, we've worked closely with Katie uh, Weira to actually develop a leadership vision among our, uh, our leadership Primarily right now, our physician leaders, our section chiefs, we're gonna define the section chief role in the fall, assess our needs and do a gap analysis. And we'll be doing <clears throat> in a focused way <clears throat> in our council meetings, which meet every Wednesday morning, uh, a curriculum on advancing the leaders in our institution, starting with the section chiefs, but also we'll have medical directors and other leaders. Um, in addition to programs that those in Chad are very much welcome and encouraged to participate in the Connerty Leadership Program through Dartmouth-Hitchcock. As far as living our positive core, um, this, one's a, this one's been a little bit more challenging. I think we live it. I think it's hard sometimes to put it in words and to put it in context. But there will be a new branding campaign for Dartmouth-Hitchcock launching soon, most broadly, which will allow us to uh, have an opportunity to sort of reinvest in what it means to be Chad, to reinvigorate that identity, understand what the name is. In the meantime, I'll put in a pitch. And whenever you're talking with the media or the public, identify yourself as the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock or Chad. Um, try to use those consistently. Um, DHMC is probably a term that overall we're gonna try and move away from to emphasize one DH as a whole. We're all part of Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And there's so many variations of how we identify ourselves, identify ourselves in the media. And in terms of the Manchester Hub, we've, we've actually consolidated, before we've had a chance to build out the full service center, we've actually consolidated our specialty practices mostly to the Wellington Road facility, DH Manchester, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Manchester, which has been a real nice plus. It's allowed us to have child-friendly uh, things like phlebotomy and radiology techs developed at the Chad space there. So we've got, a, we've got our hub uh, developing. And we've got a DHMC hub, of course, here at Lebanon. And there I go. I use the term that I'm not supposed to. But uh, we are preparing for Five East Pediatric and Adolescent Unit to undergo some um, significant renovations and revitalization, um, perhaps as soon as the midwinter. I, I think you'll start to see changes and certainly designs coming your way. So we're, we're working there, and that's a major advance. As far as functioning as two hubs seamlessly integrated, uh, we have a telecardiology pilot launched by Johanna and Pam Hoffley to facilitate rapid responses using telehealth from our northern New England regional program in pediatric cardiology. So our cardiologists are based in Manchester as well as here in Lebanon and up, and up in Burlington, Vermont, who aren't part of this pilot phase, but the ability to within 30 minutes be um, in real time looking at a patient and reviewing even things like echocardiograms in real time would be a really nice opportunity to have our team work regionally. And Scott is in the front row. Thank you for joining us. Scott Shipman presented at Grand Rounds about this e-consult and enhanced referral system that our EMRs and other technologies can help us advance. And he is going to be working with many of you in the audience as a consultant to advance those 
uh, projects to help us, uh, again, seamlessly provide care in a disparate geographic region. In terms of delivering the care every time, we talked a lot of a team that was going to look at service line leadership and structure, and, and I think almost everyone probably has seen or heard one of Dr. John Berkmeyer's town halls. He's made it abundantly clear that he is going to move us all into a service line alignment, even in a much more rapid fashion than Cliff Belden had in mind. So we'll be working with Dr. Berkmeyer, Ed Marins, and Mary Osai are charged with sort of the, the underbelly, the, the, the innards of what a service line looks like. But it's very, very much aligned with what we aspire to do in terms of a regionally integrated clinical delivery system. And why is that important? Why is that important to me? That's important to me because ultimately executing every time means delivering high-value care and high-impact academics with high reliability. What Steve Chapman, I don't see him here, might say, to say what we do and do what we say every time. And I was very attracted as I attended the National, the Children's Hospital Solution for Patient Safety Conference about this high, high reliability concept, because high reliability organizations uh, I took this quote away, advance a mindful, conscientiously respectful, and accountable culture, sometimes called a just culture, in which the best people can execute and optimize rigorously designed system processes. A lot of us who've heard about QI and process improvement keep hearing about the system will save the day. If you have a good system, the care will be right. Forgetting the fact that it's the people in the system that actually deliver the goods, and you really need the culture and the high reliability to optimize the system. It's not just about the system. But I have to, I have to step back a little bit. I have to not get ahead of myself. High reliability actually has a very much more narrow, specific meaning. It's not as broad as that, although the potential is there for high effectiveness and high efficiency. But it starts in the safety world. So high reliability organizations have succeeded in avoiding catastrophes in environments where normal accidents can be expected due to risk factors and complexity. Things like commercial aviation, nuclear power, aircraft carriers, healthcare. So these HROs have, uh, have succeeded in uh, identifying a safety aspect, and it starts there. And healthcare is interested in high reliability. This is where we're going right now. And the uh, Joint Commission uh, has identified high reliability healthcare as an important goal and a journey. We're not like the nuclear power industry. We're not like commercial aviation. We have some steps that we have to take, but our first steps include a commitment to achieving zero patient harm, widespread deployment of highly effective process improvement tools, which we have through the Value Institute, and Sean Ralston taking on a lead role as our director of value improvement with the High Value Health Collaborative, and a fully functional culture of safety. And that's what many of you have already signed up to do and participate in to start our safety culture, our culture of safety work that Johanna and Sam are gonna take off on. That's the first step of our journey towards high reliability. And it's the first of our journey, but it's also the first step of Dartmouth-Hitchcock's journey broadly. Sam was just next door at seven o'clock giving a talk on this high reliability and other concepts for our DH leadership. He's got his Chad tie on. George Blake, our chief patient safety officer, was in there with his Chad tie on. The children shall lead them. We will lead the way for Dartmouth-Hitchcock <laughs> on our road. Sam? <laughs> Thank you, Keith. And I will say it's been great to have the leadership support to get this work done. Um, I feel a little bit like a farmer who's been planting seeds for two and a half years and finally starting to see some fruits of the labor. 
Um, those in the ambulatory world may not have met Johanna Bellavo yet, but she is oh. the administrative director for maternal child services. Sure. Got that right? <laughs> yeah. But it was my good fortune that she came here having been at CHOP uh, and gone through much of the same training and stuff, the HPI methodology that the collaborative use. So she's been an incredible resource, and I think that's part of the reason we're able to uh, succeed here. So we're going to call it the road to high reliability. Um, and I want to just set the stage, uh, as we say, create the burning platform, but pointing out that medical harm, you know, preventable injury happens, unfortunately, frequently, and it happens even at great children's hospitals. So. About a month ago, I circulated a link and suggested people follow it because it was entitled How Technology Led a Hospital to Give a Patient 38 Times His Dosage. Okay, and it's great. It's on the web. And if you're really interested, uh, there's the book by Rob Wachter. He's a national safety expert, and he wrote this book about the digital doctor. And he actually will be visiting Dartmouth in the spring and giving that will be a you don't want to miss that lecture. But when people hear this, they say, you know, how in the world could this happen, right? And this is Bactrim. Anyone know what a Bactrim tablet looks like? I mean, they're horse pills, and they convinced the teenager to take 38 and a half of them, okay? And the initial reaction of most people is, you know, how could people be that stupid, right? How could the doctor order that much? How could the nurse give that many? And I'm wondering, how in the world did they convince a teenager to do it? But, <laughs> but this is what happened in brief. And these are actually things from our own. And the house officer wrote the order the way she should. She wrote four bigs per kick per dose. The weight was here. And because they come in certain size tablet, it got up with this error. You know, it called for 1.69 tablets. And the pharmacist rightly caught it and said, you know, he called the house and he said, would you just write the order for 160 milligrams so I can give her an order of things? It's still within the therapeutic range. And she said, sure. But they had made a decision that they were going to use that as the default. So because the first time she selected MIGS per kilo per dose, the second time she entered the screen to make the correction, it also said MIGS per kilogram per dose. And so she typed in, I think I got my slides out of order. She typed in the 160 that he had asked her to type in, but missed the fact that it's not 160 milligrams, it's 160 megs per kick per day. Computer didn't care. It calculated out 34 tablets. Okay. I couldn't find a patient with the exact weight of the patient at UCSF, but pretty close. And by the way, there were no warning alerts that you're overdosed or anything that went through. Okay. So I did this in our system to recreate it. So you would think the pharmacist reviewing would say 34 tablets, that's good. But what was the pharmacist looking for? The pharmacist were looking for 160. And he looked and he saw 160 and he said, okay, and he verified it. So wouldn't the person pulling it out of the stock say 38, that can't be right. But they had purchased a fancy new robot. The robot pulls the things and the robot doesn't care whether it's 38 tabs or Two, it doesn't know the difference. So it was pulled, packaged, sent to the bedside. What about the nurse? 
You know, she just sees this screen that says, this is the dose. And, uh, you know, take all those tablets, 34 tablets. But she's a little uneasy. She says, that, you know, that can't be right. They must only mean one tablet. So she scans it with her barcode. What's the computer tell her? Wrong dose. You're not giving the right dose, right? So she goes, checks. Yeah, it says 34 tablets. Yep, pharmacy verified it. So what'd she do? She scanned the 34 tablets. And what did the computer say? Ah, now you got it right. And proceeded to give the medication. Okay, so these things happen. They happen and technology will not solve them for us. It will prevent some errors, but it will create the opportunity to do other things. We never ever could have made that error on paper, right? No one would have written in migs per kilogram per dose and no pharmacist would have missed the fact all the way through and no one would have pulled it off the shelf and a nurse wouldn't have given it had they not all been reassured by technology. Okay, but that happened at UCSF and you know we're much better, right? <laughs> but I just want to convince you that stuff like this can happen at Chad. So the people that you're going to see, you'll recognize they were not involved in the actual event. I took a little bit of video liberty here, but I want you. <laughs> oh. There's a real risk to working with me. <laughs> oh no, is it just too low? Yeah, keep going. Just go all the way to the top. Okay. I'm going to go back and just uh, restart uh, it. Cause... All right. Listen carefully, okay?
I'm going to confirm this dose with his mother. This is Brown. Can you confirm the dose of clonidine for me? Yeah, 0.75 mil. Okay, 7.5 tablets of 0.1 milligrams equals 0.75 milligrams. So that checks out. And the order was verified by the pharmacy, so it must be right. Did everyone catch that error? Mom didn't understand the fractions. It wasn't recorded when they had the phone note. The MA interviewed the patient and wrote down the dose that mom reported. The attending just said the new dose is working, but didn't notice that it had changed and the cascade went through. And we gave the child 10 times the intended dose of medicine. He ended up in the PICU. Fortunately, no permanent sequelae but I submit to you that the error we committed was no less serious than what UCSF did. We just had the good fortune that it was a less toxic medication. So, um, Johanna is gonna talk a little more about the high reliability and we'll finish up here. So how do we uh, keep those things from happening? And um, Keith did a nice introduction to what high reliability is and how it can be helpful to us in healthcare. So I'm gonna focus specifically on this idea of probability. So what we've learned over uh, the last several years in healthcare is that these organizations who are considered high reli highly reliable really focus on the probability that something's gonna happen. So the consequences often you can't change, you know, and for us, one of the easiest um, examples is in surgery. You know, if we amputate the wrong limb, we amputate the wrong limb and that's done. There's nothing that you can do about that that's a pretty severe consequence. So what do we focus on? We focus on the probability through our timeout processes and other things that we don't do that uh, through our site marking and other things. So what does that look like? We, so as we look at these organizations, they identify certain behaviors that are characteristic of them, and they bucket them into two different categories, one of anticipation and one of containment. So organizations that are highly reliable really anticipate, they think about whether or not an error is gonna occur all the time, and they enact certain behaviors to make sure that those things don't happen. So we talk about sensitivity to operations, really paying attention to what's going on around you, uh, not just your own work, but those that you are partnered with to provide care. This sense of preoccupation with failure, so this constant vigilance and awareness of where could this go wrong. Um, in safety science, we often use a tool called failure modes and effect analysis. This is uh, similar to that, is that constant thinking about what's my failure mode here? Where could this go wrong and what can I do to prevent it? Reluctance to simplify is really around just that. You don't take a simple answer. Uh, to the question that you keep digging. Um, and again, another tool there might be the five why process. You just keep asking the why. Why do we do that um, until you get to the root cause? And then when you're in a situation where there is a potential error in front of you, you see uh, something that doesn't make sense to you, you really need to defer to the expertise, again, on your team. And it may not be the person who has the most years of experience in that environment. It may not be um, the person who would you consider to be the most trained or expert um, as our physician team often is seen. It is, it's sometimes it's the supply clerk who stocks the meds in the OR, or stocks the supplies in the OR, who really understands what that equipment is. And so in these kinds of environments, it's understanding who has the expertise to get to whatever uh, workflow you're trying to get uh, work out.
And then this idea of commitment to resilience, and that's as an organization and par uh, particularly for those of us in leadership positions, is that we don't um, ever lose our way. It's, it's the constant attention uh, to these behaviors, to this culture, to this response when we have errors. We really do need to be resistant. So all of that pulled together really leads to a state of mindfulness for an organization that results in high reliability. What does it mean for our patients? It's actually much uh, simpler from the patient perspective, right? Um, all they really want is that we keep them safe. So we're going to talk about safekeeping, and you'll begin to see this um, logo on our materials and, and things of that nature um, that will highlight some of the program aspects. So they want us to keep them safe. They want us to care for you. So many of you have been involved in the team care work over the last three years now that that initiative has been rolling. And it's really about how we collaborate with one another, how we communicate with each other and with our families. And that's another really important aspect um, for our families. And then they're interested in being involved and respecting them, them and their time. So again, fairly straightforward from the patient perspective. And we are trying to align these initiatives uh, so that they're not duplicative of each other, but building on one another. The good news is we're not doing this alone. So Keith mentioned, and I believe you've probably heard before, around the Solutions for Patient Safety Network. We have, I think it's 86 children's hospitals represented um, on this page and really just wanted to show you this so that you can appreciate that we're learning from the best in the country. We're helping uh, to teach others in the country about the best ways to do this work. And so there's a lot of knowledge and information out there that's helping us along our journey. So how are we doing? Our initial efforts were really focused on our hospital-acquired conditions, so those things that uh, we know uh, are harm events for our inpatients. And so we had a team that worked on pressure ulcers. We've had a team that's done work on adverse drug events, a team on surgical site infections, catheter. So that's our CLABC. I think we have CAUTI next. Um, and then there's some other work that's happened as one-offs for things that are high risk in our particular population. So this is what we've been focusing on sort of these condition-specific initiatives over the last uh, couple of years. And we've done pretty well. So this is our pressure ulcer data. So the way that you interpret this graph is that our, the dark blue line is our performance rate as compared to the rest of the network. And so pressure ulcers for us uh, here at Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, we're doing pretty well. Adverse drug events, again, pretty consistent with our performance. We've had a couple of serious events in the last several years, but for the most part, we're pretty reliable in our medication processes. Surgical site infections, again, um, a history uh, that, you know, several years back, I think that looks like 12, uh, 2012 and 13, where we had a few infections, but since uh, David Bauer, who I saw uh, somewhere um, in the audience, has been doing a lot of work on this uh, surgical site infection piece, and we have had a great run um, uh, without infection now for several months, maybe even years. <laughs> CLABC. So this is an area where we still um, have work to do. Most of you are probably aware of the recent infection uh, rash we had in the ICN. So that's what you're seeing there uh, at the end of our time together, although we've done some incredible work and that team has worked really hard and we went several months without an infection. Unfortunately, we did have one at the early part of uh, September, which isn't yet represented here. Uh, but overall, uh, we've made great improvements with that this year. 
But so what does, oh, sorry, and Catherine's Oceanary, uh, Caudis. We, we rarely have a Caudi in our environment, which is, which is great news. So what does all this mean? You know, so we've been working now in this collaborative uh, for three years, going into four. And in our baseline year, we had seven events that were classified as serious safety events or serious harm events, then four, then four, and then seven. I would note that the seven in year three were all of those uh, central line associated infections in, in the ICN. Um, but what does this picture tell us? It's really telling me when I look at it that we're not yet reliable, that we have variation in our ability to prevent uh, these kinds of harms from happening for our patients. I think that's. So I think you're taking yeah, it from here. Great. Although I don't know why it's displaying that way. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Thank you, Johanna. So, you know, we have done actually extremely well as a small hospital in this collaborative, and we were actually cited th three different commendations, one for adverse drug events, one for surgical site infections, and another for bloodstream infection for being in the top 10th centile of the collaborative and having high reliability. So um, I've been very proud of that. But I want to come back to this concept slide. <clears throat> These focus areas require teams, bundles, very specific action around that particular risk, right? By the way, isn't hospital-acquired condition a nice euphemism? <laughs> you know, I didn't get infected by the hospital. I just acquired a condition. <laughs> it's a bit like the near miss that the airlines describe, right? <laughs> Some would consider a near hit. <clears throat> so what we have to do, though, to succeed is we've got to have some cross-cutting change. We've got to have air prevention uh, safety things that will prevent any type of error because we can't possibly amount to <clears throat> for every possible error that could happen to a child in a, compl a complex system like we have. So one of them is the safety governance. And uh, we can all thank Paul McGarriam for recognizing, as he became the first director of CHAD, to organize a structure within CHAD that allows those things to flow up and, uh, and all the way to the level of the organization. We know that we've got to have patient and family engagement, and you may know that Carol Majewski is now leading an entire section of the hospital around the patient experience. So lots of work going in that arena. <clears throat> and we just heard about the high reliability um, units and team care, which, uh, again, I, that was the lecture next door. So we're right in the thick of it, and Chad has been a leader there. Um, <clears throat> we have restructured team care, just for those who know about it. And so when the institution has an um, area that they want to emphasize, you know, they may set the standards say, we have a central line infection rate that's unacceptably high as an organization. Uh, this is going to go out to the units. And the leaders of the units are the ones who actually get the work done. The unit managers help the staff and the administrative directors direct them and, and so forth. But this is all new. We now have a support system that is going to help us implement those things at the unit level. And I've been asked to lead that along with Pam Brown, who is the director of nursing quality. And this is going to be a substantial force. 
Uh, it will include all our clinical nurse specialists. It will include all the senior safety specialists. And it's going to include a bevy of coaches, safety champion coaches. And I'm talking an aggregate 120 individuals will be working out of that orange box to help us. We anticipate about four coaches per unit. So good things are happening in that dimension, and you'll hear more about those in the coming years. Cause analysis is one other plank that the hospitals have recommended we do in the collaborative as part of this culture work. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means for us. This is all probably invisible to you, but we're using a new classification system that actually ranks it by the harm that actually occurred to the patient. So if it was a serious event, but it didn't actually harm them, it would not qualify up here. But these are the really serious, at least moderate harm, temporary or permanent or severe. These are the ones we hope never happen. For every one of these, there's about 100 of these precursor events that may reach the patient, but it results in minimal harm or no detectable harm. For every one of those, there's another 10 of these. So about a thousand air misses for every one that gets through all our defenses and causes those events. <clears throat> so that's part of my work. Uh, and I've now taken on a role of chair of searches, which is the Sentinel event investigation group of the organization. But we're looking at errors very systematically. So we're breaking them into failure modes. There are various system failure modes, as you might see, culture, process, maybe it's our technology. And then there are individual failure modes. It may be awareness, competency, it might be communication. But we will break out each of the errors into those fundamental causes. And from there, we'll be able to talk intelligently about what really is causing the errors. Now, these are data from 168 hospitals across the nation that have been aggregated by Healthcare Performance Improvement, who is the consultant that's helped the collaborative develop these materials. And it's pretty remarkable. So these are individual failure modes. And you see, competency is involved in about 21% of medical errors overall. So most of the time, you know, 79% of the time, people know what was supposed to have happened, right? It's not a lack of knowledge. Consciousness 13. Communication, you know, that might surprise you that it turned out to be that low, but part of it's the way they define it. Critical thinking, certainly a big cause of errors. And these are the system type failures that, you know, it's our job as leaders to make sure the system supports you. We will always commit errors, right? Or humans, we will make errors all the time. The trick is devising a system so the error will be trapped before it actually reaches our patient. And you can see here um, the structure of the environment is generally good. Our policies are usually very good. Technology is usually not a big contributor. But look under culture. In 55% of the errors, they could relate it to what they call culture. Um, we also delve into these events when we do get a sentinel event and break it into its component parts so that we can analyze this in aggregate. And then we can start talking about common causes. So this is all behind the scenes, but this is where you fit in. 
we really rely on event reporting. If it doesn't get into Pontrose, I'm not going to hear about it unless you personally take the time to bring it to my attention. And that's a lot to remember. But I know Pontrose seems like a black box and you wonder, well, what the heck happened to the thing I put into Quantrose. So I'm going to describe the way we hope things will work going forward. And this is a new uh, model for chat. But most of those events, well, all of the events actually go to the unit manager for review. So if you say it happened on the PD uh, ambulatory, it's going to go to Nettie. If it's on the ward, so forth. And most of the time, they're going to just feed right back address the issue, put a comment about the report, and close it. And that will be the end of it. But we're taking an extra step here now. And Chad is going to review every event in Quantros for any child under 19 years of age, okay? Because sometimes they haven't even come to our ward. They've come in and had a radiographic procedure. They've gone to ortho and had a knee replacement on the adult thing. But we're going to take responsibility broadly and determine if it's a serious safety event. And if it is, then we're going to have institutional review that confirms that rating. There's a panel that's already been assembled and is doing this work. And we'll conduct a very thorough root cause analysis, really trying to get everyone involved with that event into the room at the same time, really in depth. What are the root causes? And then the safety team behind the scenes will do that failure mode assignment and ultimately allow us to do common cause so we can really look globally. Other organizations are doing the same thing. And through the patient safety organization, we get all their information as well. So it really gets robust. Suppose it's not a serious safety event. Suppose it's just a precursor event. We got lucky. It was mild or minimal harm. We're going to investigate those as well. And we can't spend all the time to do a full root cause analysis, but we're going to do something called a parent cause analysis, which, like its name implies, it's pretty much that quick assessment. What contributed here? What can we change and fix? You'll hear more about that. But the data from that will also feed into the system. For those events that are neither serious safety event or precursor, you know, that will be the end of the line. But I want to emphasize this. If you can't give us the reports, we can't get here. So they really do count. I know it's a pain to stop and put it in. Um, but please, 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 if you can at all, just sit down there at Quantrus. There's actually, if you do the minimum on the fields, you can literally do it in two minutes. Um, and then we will pursue from there. And I would just add to that, I think one of the things that um, we've learned and the network has learned in HPI particularly has helped us understand is that in that um, pyramid that uh, Sam just described to you, the common causes are, are the same, right? So all of those near-miss or precursor events that happen, you have the same causes for those events that ultimately end up in a serious safety event. So for those, it is really important that we understand those near-miss events so that we can look at them and understand where our, where our systems and processes are breaking down, where we can help uh, the people do their best work so that we prevent those serious safety events from happening. So the other uh, cross-cutting uh, 
program that we are focusing on is error prevention behavior. So this is, uh, again, everyone in this room should be receiving um, your emails to sign up for that training class. And I believe, actually, we just got numbers yesterday that of the 300 and some odd people that we're trying to enroll, 290 of you have already done that. So thank you. Um, it's a really wonderful effort. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means and how that helps us uh, along our journey. So we're intentionally calling it safety behaviors for error prevention. So as I spoke about the high reliability concepts, it's really linking this idea around uh, behavior that results in um, high reliability at the patient side that ultimately builds the culture that we're trying to create. It's actually pretty simple. There are three main behaviors that we're asking everyone to engage in. And so for those of you who've already participated in class, this will look familiar. Um, so I'm going to just highlight a few key, uh, key things. So everyone makes a personal commitment to safety. So that's your commitment to do your best work, have that hypervigilance um, on, be thinking about that situational awareness every time you're in a clinical environment. And those are three of the tools that we talk about in our training. So. Uh, the name game, very simply, introducing yourself to the people that you're working with so that you know one another and that you can easily give each other feedback. Um, you'll learn about uh, team member checking and a process called ARC, which is escalating a concern when you have one and paying attention to detail. The second behavior is around communication. So everyone being accountable for clear and complete communication. So we, we do, we have a number of tools already that we've been using in healthcare and here specifically at CHAD, but this is again a reminder for us that we really need to standardize the way in which we're handing off uh, patient information to one another, that we're using that ISBAR-Q or SBAR. Uh, you'll learn a little bit more what the ISBAR-Q means in class as a way to communicate with someone when you need a decision about patient care. And then using some techniques around clarifying information when, you, when you've heard that from somebody. And then the last one is everyone supporting a questioning attitude. And again, a couple of tools. So how do you stop and resolve an issue when you have a question about something? And this is a really, really important thing. And what I actually believe is sort of the cornerstone of our work, our cultural work as, as a team providing care for children. It's, there's two pieces of it. We each need to be willing to question when we have a concern, when that sort of internal smoke detector is going off and saying something's not right about this situation and I need to pursue it, I need to ask questions. And we also have to welcome being questioned by others. So we talk about this um, also in the context of flattening the hierarchy, that deference to expertise, which is a, uh, one of the high reliability concepts that we need to embrace. It's that everyone on the team contributes something to the care of that patient. Everyone on the team has the obligation to question if they don't feel that we're heading in the right direction or that there's a concern that something's going to happen. Um, and so I think that that's a really important piece. And we're asking you to take these behaviors back into your practice, you know, once, and you'll learn again more about that as you go uh, through that training. And so leadership methods is also, uh, it's a supplement to the error prevention training. And so some of you will be invited to attend that course as well. It is designed for people in uh, more formal leadership positions, our medical directors, our, our nurse managers, um, directors, etc. Uh, but we would again ask that 
and Sam, I think, is going to speak to this a little bit in terms of the role of the physician as leader. So whether or not you hold a formal leadership position, the reality is that you are often perceived as a leader. You are the leader of your clinical team when you're rounding in the units and so on and so forth. And so we'll be working with you as well over time around how do you lead this culture change? What tools and resources do you need to role model uh, these behavior changes and to, and to coach others um, along this journey? So I think that's just an important piece to, to call out. Uh, so we will also be holding leadership classes that Sam and I will be teaching. And where are we going from here, Sam? Yeah. All right, back to you. Thank you. And I, I again want to emphasize that last point. Um, many of you are leaders, even though you don't realize it, okay? You may not have a title, but you're the nurse on that ward that everyone looks up to. You're the MA in clinic who has 10 years of experience and get questioned. You're the attending surgeon in the OR. Um, the way we model this affects the way people will react to it and whether they will adopt it. And when we really achieve this safety culture, which kind of includes all of what we talked about today, it will be irresistible to adopt those things if you come into the environment. A new employee coming into Chad would just instantly adopt all those behaviors because that is the way we do things. And everyone understands that's the way we do things. You're going to learn about a safety phrase called, I have a concern about this patient. That means the line stops no matter who said it on the team. Okay? I don't care if it's from environmental services. Anyone on that team can say, there's a concern here that's got to be resolved before we go forward. Because you would be very saddened to know how many times a sentinel event occurs when some member on the team knew something was off but didn't speak up. And in order to encourage that, we're going to have to be receptive when we do get questions. So this is what we talk about for safety culture. Hard to kind of get your hands around. You know, how are we going to measure this? We can do surveys and stuff. But what we really want to see is those serious safety events fall off. And why are we hammering it? Because you can build evidence-based order sets and bundles and packages and process design. Um, and it's going to help, but it's only going to get you up to an error rate of about 1 to 100, 1 to 1,000, okay? Sadly, this is about where medicine functions most of the time. You know, in fact, if you get them into the hospital, there's a higher chance than 1 in 100 that you'll have some adverse event happen to you during that. The organizations that get up to these kind of error rates, one in 10,000, they really have established this reliability culture. The nuclear industry, aircraft carriers, those kinds of events. So that's why we're focusing, because we want to get up into here. Ultimately, we want to be up into human factors integration, okay? A great example of that is the gas connector for the anesthesiologist. So it's physically impossible to hook up the oxygen line to the anesthetic line because the connectors have been designed to not be interchangeable. But before someone did that, every year, tens of people would die from a switch of the tubing. We have just developed a connector that makes it much more difficult to give an oral 
enteral feeding intravenously, okay, 30 years after the first case report. And every year, hundreds, hundreds of people die because they're given enteral fluids <laughs> intravenously. So we're going to get there, but it's going to be a long time coming. Medicine's slow to change. So the focus is going to be down here. And we will only get there if everyone on the team is part of it. So we've gotten, you know, some feedback. You know, I've been here, you know, in training for a long time. Do I really need to do this? You know, I'm a busy attending. This is going to be hard to do. You know, I'm, I'm just this, you know, the secretary. You know, I, I don't handle medications or what. The truth is every one of us who touches a child has got to be part of this. And that's why you're seeing everyone invited to participate in this um, training. So this was the culture plan that we embarked on about two years ago. This is out of the collaborative, and I'm thrilled that we really have met most of these goals already. We've got the senior leaders who adopted wave four. We have our oversight group. We have joined the patient safety organization. We have a safety event review team and we have cause analysis methodology in process. We're now in the thick of it, training all leaders and all staff. Our safety coach program will be developed this year. And so by the end of this fiscal year, by June of 2016, we're gonna have completed all the things we set out to do. And I hope the payoff will really be measurable and palpable. So again, that's the matrix. It's complicated, but you should be reassured that we're doing this much work to keep our patients safe. And you, right now, are here. Okay, so when you get that call from Halogen, please sign up for a course. If you've taken the course and had a good experience, please spread the word. And if you take the course and you don't have a good experience, please come to us and talk about how we can make it better. It's three hours long. Three hours long. So, you know, when we first heard this, we're going to take every member of CHAD for three hours to talk about this stuff. But we believe it will work. We've seen it in other hospitals, and that's why we're asking you to um, participate. And so we have enough time for some questions, and thank you for your attention. Yeah, Kim. I just returned from a fantastic conference, the Pins Conference Pediatric Educational Project Excellence, so like undergrad medical school and CME, and the topic of the whole conference was about um, and how we teach and promote value. And um, they talked a lot about the themes we've been talking about, but two other themes emerged um, in some of our discussion groups, and I just wonder if you could comment on how the two of them come in here. Um, so I do outpatient medicine. Um, I think that um, I probably experience multiple times a day things that I would consider sort of small, low-level precursor events. Um, when my high-risk patient doesn't show up, when the communication breaks down with the therapist, um, um, there's a, a million situations that happen every day. And what do we do? We say, oh, we're doing our best, and we maybe do something and whatever. But I believe that the cumulative effect of all of those things and the, and the um, not mortality, I mean, everyone's not, but the morbidity that's caused by the cumulative effect of all these low-level things 
is probably way greater than pressure ulcers and clapsies and whatever. And so I just wondered how, how um, to integrate that into this framework. And the second one is that there's really, really good evidence that wellness um, uh, of the providers, of the team, of, in, in, the, in the way that that impacts both the individual factors and the culture plays a big role. And I just wonder where sort of wellness, uh, attention to wellness of um, employees uh, comes into play. Mm -hmm. Do you want to handle um, so I'll start with the second question, um, if I may. So the wellness component, so part of the work of team care over the last several years, you know, the, the team care idea is really around uh, exactly that. It's the, it's the wellness of that functioning team, which includes our relationship. It's about relationships. It's about relationships with one another. It's about relationships with the family, but it's also about relationship with ourselves and understanding ourselves and being able to come to work to provide the best care. And so what does that mean? So in our team care conversations and as we're working with our senior leadership group around how do we create that environment? What programs do we have? So obviously we have some programs um, internally already that help us as an organization uh, advance, you know, keep ourselves healthy as, as a workforce, but there is definitely more to come. One of the things that we've been able to do in Chad, and I don't, um, I mean, hopefully you haven't had to experience it, but Code Lavender is a program that we in Chad started to pilot last year, which is really a response team for traumatic events in a clinical environment. So whether that's a traumatic event for a patient or even a traumatic event for a, a one of the team members. So if, if a colleague has a uh, diagnosis that's difficult and sort of rocking the team, we can do a code lavender to help support and do that work. Uh, we've certainly done it a number of times in our inpatient environment. We actually have a meeting next week with uh, Rob Green and uh, Gay Landstrom and other officers to talk about how do we bring that program out to the rest of the organization. So that's just one piece of it, but it's definitely in our mind um, as how we have to do that. We have to be able to take care of ourselves in order to take care of others. We're, we're trying to drop the phrase patient safety just say safety because I want to keep you guys safe as well as our patients. Okay? Well, yeah. I'll add, so the, the, the daily safety note, which is part of the culture and the work that's going on in DHY that happens every morning at, at 9.30, starts, the first stat they report is days since a time loss employee injury, and the last bit is a report from our folks in the well work well on what reports have come in. So that, I know that's not wellness overall, but that is a high level concern. The second thing came is, um, I was attracted clearly about something that will help us never harm a child who's in our care, which should always be priority number one. But I was really excited when they started talking about high reliability organizations performing better, being more effective and efficient in delivering all of the things you talk about across domains, not just sort of the sentinel safety events. So that's the journey we're on. It's not just zero harm, it's higher performance and doing better in what we do. Ashley, Bill, go ahead. Then Ashley. My, my question about this is, has to do with none of these are new ideas, right? Like, um, we've been around this a number of times over the last 10 years or so, and many of us remember the videos that, that all of us needed to watch. And the question is, how do you go from an organization that seems to, when pressures rise, we can rise to the occasion, we can create, you know, a lot of emphasis, a lot of energy around starting a project, getting enthusiastic about it, but the problem is sustainability. Um, 
how do you how do you keep this energy from uh, waning? And then you know, when another five years we come back and we we have the same initiative to try to re-sensitize people to the issue. Yeah, it's a great question, and and really that is the job of leadership, isn't it? We've got to make sure this continues. And I point out the better we get at it, the harder it is to convince people it's important, right? Picky went three years without a bloodstream infection. How worried are they about bloodstream infection if it hasn't happened in three years? So it's human nature that we start to let our guard down. And then the event happens and we recycle and go through there. But I think when you go through the course, if you do adopt those behaviors, in fact, it will be feeding on each other and it will be kind of that constant reminder that this stuff really works. To your point, Bill, this is the first time we got 88 children's hospitals together <laughs> to say, this is it. We got Cincinnati Children's driving it, and we got a very prescriptive method to do this. We also just sent a team of five institutional leaders to the board's training offered by the collaborative. So now we've got it at pretty much every level of the organization saying, we are going to do this. And if Jim Weinstein believes it, if the board of trustees believes it, I think we got a chance at sustaining it. But believe me, we're too small as a safety group to do this. It's really got to be the audience. I think the fact that over 300 people already registered for the course speaks very well. So I know time's short here. Ashley, do you want to make a quick comment? Okay. I'm, I'm a practicing pediatrician in the community and just want to say thank you because we think of DH as our kids' home and where we go and where we really rely on you. Um, I would encourage you to think about opening this up to your community physicians and practices as well because I'm with Kim every day, you know, making those near misses and going, oh shoot, how am I going to fix this? And trying to do that in a small practice is really hard. So any expertise you're learning that can be shared back, you have your students and your residents in our offices, and we'd love to continue that culture for you. The other piece would be to find a way that we can feedback. I don't have access to Quantros. And right now, when I see something happen in the ER, or I hear something from my family that makes me cringe, I reach out to those people that I know in the DH community and say, hey, can you look into this for me? But having a formalized way of the community provider saying, I'm just worried about this, can you check in on this, I think would be really helpful as well. I, please see, see me on any of those emails or just make the email directly to Thank you for your comments. We neglected to say this. This is all of Chad. This is the community group practices too, okay? So it's not just inpatient. Not just Lebanon. Thank you. Great. Great, John.